0: Welcome to the AAP Board Review Series. This is an educational podcast series that covers high-yield topics in physical medicine and rehabilitation. My name is Dr. Michael Murphy. I'm a resident at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City, Kansas.
1: And I'm Austin Marcolina. I am one of the residents, PGY3 residents, at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And in this episode, we'll be covering opioid pharmacology.
0: A quick disclaimer: The AAP Board Review series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the host and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. Let's get moving. We have a 55-year-old male and longtime patient of yours with a past medical history of obesity, anxiety, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes, sleep apnea on CPAP. In uh, low back pain on chronic opioid therapy, who presents to clinic for follow up. He reports worsening pain despite dose escalation of his oxycodone from 40 mg TID to 60 mg TID at his last appointment. His pain is no longer localized to the low back, and he reports, quote, pain everywhere, end quote. There has been no new exciting event or trauma that precipitated the change in pain. He continues to take his gabapentin, 600 mg, three times a day, duloxetine, 60 mg, twice daily and alprazolam, 0.25 milligrams, three times daily as needed. His vitals are stable and his physical exam is otherwise unchanged from his previous visits. So Austin, after hearing that case, what do you suppose is the most likely explanation for his worsening pain? Based on his symptoms, the
1: description that you put out there, as well as some of the medications that he's on, the first thing that I'd think of is opioid-induced hyperalgesia, otherwise known as OIH. Now, Mike, would you mind kind of going into what OIH is and and kind of some background for our listeners?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you're right on. This is uh, this is a case that represents OIH. It's a condition. It's actually a paradoxal condition in which long-term use of opioids causes hyperalgesia or allodynia. It's thought to result from neuroplastic changes in the peripheral and central nervous system, causing a state of nociceptive sensitization. Patients who are taking opioids at higher doses and uh, for longer durations tend to be more susceptible to developing this type of condition. Uh, And as you kind of highlighted already, this case is a good example because uh, the patient is experiencing a new pain that's unrelated to his previous pain. It's more diffuse. He's had worsening hyperalgesia in the setting of uh, recent dose escalation. He's already on high-dose opioids already. Another question I have for you What are some of the common side effects that patients are at risk for? And then also of those side effects, which one tends to be the most dangerous or which one do we worry about the most?
1: So the common ones we typically think of are going to be things like lethargy, but I think probably the most common one is going to be constipation. In terms of most dangerous, the one that all providers, no matter the specialty, are going to be concerned with is the risk of potential respiratory depression.
0: You're spot on on both of those answers. As you said, one of the most frequently encountered side effects of opioids is constipation, and it's important to to really understand how that process occurs. Opioid peptides activate receptors on the enteric system, which control both motility and secretion. As a result, there is an inhibition of gastric emptying, an increase in sphincter tone, and an induction of stationary motor patterns. Together with inhibition of both ion and fluid secretion, constipation ensues. Laxatives are frequently used to treat opioid-induced constipation, but oftentimes their efficacy is unsatisfactory. Specific antagonism of peripheral opioid receptors is more is a more rational approach. Uh, it can be accomplished by using opioid receptor antagonists uh, with limited absorption, such as oral-prolonged-release naloxone and opioid receptor antagonists that do not penetrate the blood-brain barrier, uh, such as methyl naltrexone and uh, alvimopan. Like you said, The most worrisome and dangerous side effect uh, that we worry about is respiratory depression, Uh, and this occurs due to a decrease in carbon dioxide sensitivity in the respiratory centers of the brainstem. Are there any other side effects that maybe are not as well known uh, that potentially patients would be curious to know about before starting this type of medication?
1: You know, absolutely, Um, and I touched on one being lethargy, a common side effect associated with. uh, Opiate use, another one that you can or another few that you can consider are things like nausea and vomiting, and there's also a potential for sexual dysfunction, including both erectile dysfunction and decreased libido in those that actively use opiates.
0: Perfect. So we've touched on some of the, the more common side effects. So now let's transition just to touch and talk about daily oral morphine equivalents uh, and do some basic opioid conversions. So with this patient, Austin, what would their daily oral morphine equivalent be?
1: So we're going to have to dive into a little bit of math here um, because it the the dose or their their dosage of oral morphine equivalent is going to be 270 milligrams a day but there's a couple of steps that we need to to get to in order to get to that final answer. So the first thing that you go back if you were to think of the question stem is that the patient is taking 60 milligrams of Oxycontin orally TID or three times daily. So total daily dose of oxycodone is 180 because you have 60 times three. That's a pretty simple first step. Next step is going to be converting that 180 milligrams of the oral oxycodone to the daily oral morphine equivalent dosage, okay? When you look at the equal analgesic charts, um, which you can find most places, whether it's through you know, Google, a lot of textbooks, things along those lines, Um, you'll notice that 20 milligrams of oral oxycodone is equivalent to about 30 milligrams of oral morphine, which means there's a conversion factor of about 1.5 of oxycodone to morphine in the oral formulation. And so as this patient's current dosage of oral oxycodone is 100 milligrams per day, that's gonna be equal to the final answer, which is 270 milligrams per day of oral morphine.
0: Perfect could have explained it any better. Now, let me ask you this. Say this patient was taking hydrocodone instead of oxycodone. Would this change your answer at all?
1: So, it would. again, looking at those equal analgesic charts, that's going to be very helpful when you're trying to determine, say you're in the clinic or, or in certain clinical situations and you need to find the oral morphine equivalent, maybe you're transitioning from one medication to another. Say you're transitioning from something like an oxycodone to a hydrocodone. Despite the similarity in names, they do have different morphine equivalents. So the conversion factor for hydrocodone to oral morphine is actually going to be one-to-one. So if it, they were taking 180 milligrams of hydrocodone instead of the oxycodone, it would be 180 milligrams of the oral morphine.
0: This next question I have for you is probably one of the most important questions. And it's what should a patient's daily oral morphine equivalent be? You know, I, I it's a challenging
1: answer, based, especially based off of kind of what we see through, you know, the media, medical literature today, things along those lines, especially in regards to uh, the opiate crisis uh, that we see, you know, in our daily lives, and our daily practices. Um, the textbook answer that you're going to find is going to be a goal of 50 or less than 50, um, but certainly less than 90 uh, morphine equivalents per day uh, as patients have been found to be two times more likely to experience overdoses at greater than 50 per day.
0: Coming back to our case a bit and knowing that the best treatment for OIH is to stop taking opioids, you decide to prescribe your patient an opioid taper. Unfortunately, a few weeks later, his patient's wife frantically contacts your clinic after finding her husband minimally responsive, pale on the face, blue lips, shallow breathing, you advise her to contact EMS immediately in addition to administering what previously prescribed medication. So the
1: medication that we're gonna wanna prescribe in this case is going to be uh, Naloxone. Um, And Mike, I was hoping that you could kind of dive into Naloxone a little bit, Give us the understanding of this scenario, why we'd be using naloxone, and how it would be effective for the patient in this case.
0: Absolutely. So this scenario demonstrates really the rapid loss of opioid tolerance, uh, which which can be commonly seen in patients who are either taking drug holidays or have been tapered off of their medications altogether. And then they subsequently restart taking their previous drug doses. Um, As you said, naloxone is the correct answer to this question. Uh, It's an opioid antagonist, um, and it is our go-to medication for treating opioid overdose. And the reason being is it can actually reverse respiratory depression and hypotension within one to two minutes if administered IV, within two to five minutes if given IM, and then within eight to 13 minutes if if administered intranasally. But you need to be aware that A lot of times we need to give these patients multiple doses because the half-life of this medication is so short. It's oftentimes between 30 to 30 minutes to two hours, depending on the route of administration. The next important point to take away from this is that naloxone oftentimes precipitates an opioid withdrawal. So even though you're saving your patient's life, they may not be too happy with you uh, because they might start to immediately experience malaise, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, tachycardia, tremor, they're going to, they could have an acute exacerbation in their pain. Um, And it's this type of iatrogenic opioid withdrawal that we treat symptomatically uh, as opposed to uh, a natural withdrawal where we consider using methadone or buprenorphine, which are frequently used to facilitate uh, a natural opioid withdrawal. So for this type of situation, you can consider using loperamide for diarrhea or promethazine for nausea and vomiting, ibuprofen, uh, for myalgias uh, and if you're if you're battling some high blood pressure then you consider can consider using clonidine but again the takeaway is this is symptomatic treatment only all right let's jump into a pop quiz I have a few questions here for you Austin so we'll just kind of rattle these off and we'll see how it goes Question number one what is the mechanism of action of opioids
1: So the mechanism of action of opiates is going to be through their activity at mu, kappa, and delta receptors in the CNS and peripheral tissues. A key thing to note is that all of these uh, receptors are inhibitory G-protein coupled receptors.
0: Spot on. Question number two, what effect is each of these receptors responsible for? So I know we already talked about mu, kappa, and delta, but when we're
1: dealing with mu, it's important to realize that that there are two mu receptors, mu1 and mu2. Mu1 is responsible for analgesia. Mu2 is going to be uh, um, responsible for respiratory depression, sedation, euphoria, and dependence. The delta receptor is responsible for analgesia and spinal analgesia. Kappa receptors are responsible for analgesia, sedation, Respiratory depression and euphoria.
0: I have nothing to add. Question number three What is the IV to PO conversion for morphine, hydromorphone, oxycodone, and hydrocodone, respectively?
1: So, similar to earlier on in the podcast, when we were kind of talking about those morphine equivalent charts, it's important because a lot of those charts also have the IV to PO conversion. So when we're dealing with morphine, it's a conversion factor of 3 from IV to PO. So an example is you have 10 milligrams of IV, which is going to be equivalent to 30 milligrams of PO. For hydromorphone, uh, some of you who are in clinical situations may know that as Dilaudid, uh, there's a conversion factor of 5 from the IV to PO formulations. So an example is you have 1.5 milligrams of IV. It's equivalent to 7.5 milligrams of PO. Again, that is for hydromorphone. For oxycodone and hydrocodone, those are only going to be available in PO preparations. There actually isn't an IV preparation for either
0: of those models. I thought I might chip you up a little bit on that, that last part. but. Uh... <laughs> so question number four. How do you calculate a rescue dose for breakthrough pain? So generally
1: what you're going to think of when uh, you're thinking of uh, the rescue dose and and what you need to do it's going to be about 10 to 15% of the total daily opiate use.
0: Spot on again, 10 to 50% of the total daily opioid dose. Uh and the only thing I would add to that is uh you want to administer a short-acting immediate less immediate release preparation. All right. So I think we've really touched on everything I wanted us to get out of this first case. So let's just transition over to our second case. A 54-year-old female with a past medical history of anxiety, depression, fibromyalgia, and opioid dependence presents to your clinic and follow-up. She's been maintained on controlled-release morphine, 30 milligrams twice daily for multiple years now, and she now wishes to come off of her chronic opioid therapy. However, she does have a a history of significant withdrawal symptoms, and she's voiced some concern uh, about this during the weaning process. First off, Austin, what are some common withdrawal symptoms uh, that our listeners need to be aware of so it's going to be uh, similar to uh, the exact, well, it's, a,
1: it's going to be the exact opposite of a lot of the symptoms that you'll find in overdose of opiates um, and, and some of those side effects that we typically think of, like some of the lethargy, sedation, um, constipation, respiratory depression, things along those lines, take the exact opposite. And so uh, the things that we typically see in uh, opiate withdrawal are going to be chills, agitation, insomnia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and muscle aches, and those can last for anywhere from days to weeks, depending on the patient's opiate use before their withdrawal symptoms.
0: Perfect. Now, you're treating this patient in clinic, and you're considering starting methadone or buprenorphine, as we talked about earlier, uh, in order to facilitate opioid weaning are you aware of the mechanisms of action for both these medications?
1: So even though methadone and buprenorphine are are two medications that are commonly thought of within the same realm, they actually act a little bit differently. So, when we're talking about methadone, you know, we talked about those opiate receptors previously, right? The mu, kappa, delta, those were the three main categories. Methadone is going to be a full mu agonist, whereas buprenorphine is going to be a partial mu agonist and a full kappa antagonist. So, again, we'll go back through that. Methadone is a full mu agonist, whereas buprenorphine is a partial mu agonist and full kappa antagonist.
0: Awesome. And can you review, again, just briefly for our listeners that may have quickly forgotten what those uh, receptor effects are?
1: Absolutely. Not a problem. So we'll kind of go back through. Again, Mu1 is going to be for analgesia, Mu2, respiratory depression, sedation, euphoria, and dependence. Kappa is going to be for analgesia, sedation, respiratory depression, and euphoria. And we'll just add in Delta, even though it isn't included in either um, uh, methadone or buprenorphine, Delta is going to be responsible for analgesia and spinal analgesia.
0: Thank you, Austin. Piggybacking off of that, is there a specific advantage that buprenorphine offers over methadone or vice versa?
1: Yeah, that's a
0: great question, and I think
1: it's something fair when people are considering in terms of the weaning process. When you're dealing with a full mu agonist versus partial mu agonist and full kappa antagonist, which you find in buprenorphine, the thought process is, is that it's going to be less sedating and have less respiratory depression. Now, Mike, I have a, I have a question for you as well, or what I was hoping that you could do is kind of dive into that a little bit more and just kind of a, a general discussion about methadone and buprenorphine in your thoughts?
0: Yeah, so two commonly encountered medications that we use uh, for opioid weaning. One of the biggest distinguishing factors, well, really there's two, but the first uh, is that methadone is typically used for severe dependence, while buprenorphine tends to be used for uh, more mild or moderate dependence. Uh, buprenorphine, however, has the added benefits of demonstrating a ceiling effect in which, after a certain points, taking more of the medication will not increase the effects of the drug. And so intuitively, this really does offer an overall better safety profile. As you alluded to, it's less sedating, has less respiratory depression, and consequently, there's less risk for overdose and less risk for abuse potential. So uh, if, if anything, those are probably the two major points that I'd, I'd take away between buprenorphine and methadone. All right, Mike, it's uh, time for rapid fire
1: review. We're going to flip the script slightly. You've been asking me all the questions up to this point. It's uh, time for you to answer some of my questions, if that's all right. Uh,
0: no, thanks. <laughs> no, just kidding. Go ahead. All let's, right. Let's see what you got.
1: So, uh, Mike, I'm going to tell you an opioid type. And if you wouldn't mind, please tell me the selectivity. And so we're going to start with natural opiates, okay? Sounds good.
0: So the first natural opiate is going to be morphine. So morphine is gonna be, it's gonna have high mu, low kappa, and low delta sensitivity. Okay. What about for codeine, the other natural um, uh, opiate? Codeine is both a weak mu and weak delta uh, agonist. Both of those are correct. Nice job, my friend. Okay, on to the next uh, category, which
1: is going to be semi-synthetic. We have hydromorphone, hydrocodone, oxycodone, and oxymorphone, all within the same category.
0: Well, that's a, a softball pitch. They're all mu agonists, Austin. That's correct. And we just touched on this one, so let's see if
1: uh, you were paying attention when you were asking the questions. For buprenorphine, what does that count towards?
0: Partial mu and full kappa and well let me say that partial mu agonist full kappa antagonist
1: look at that he was paying attention all, all right, right we're going on to the final part uh and that's going to be for synthetic or the final final category i should say is synthetic um fentanyl
0: fentanyl is a high mu low kappa uh and actually doesn't have any delta selectivity what about tramadol I'm glad you asked Tramadol. This tends to be uh, a common board question, and it's both a weak mu agonist and a weak norepi serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, And it's that latter half that tends to be board relevant, knowing that it has uh, some action on both norepinephrine and serotonin tends to be important. Okay. And
1: I think that's a key point and a key for folks to remember. So if you wouldn't mind repeating when we're
0: talking about tramadol, what were those uh, uh, receptor activities? So tramadol is going to be a weak mu agonist in addition to a weak norepinephrine serotonin reuptake inhibitor.
1: Okay. And then finally, uh, we're talking about methadone again that we touched on just briefly. Where does methadone tend to react?
0: Methadone is a high mu, high delta, low kappa. It has serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake, and it also is an NMDA antagonist.
1: So another topic that I wanted to bring up is the chemical composition of opiates. There's three different chemical classes that we typically think of. Would you mind going over those three classes and uh, which um, medications or formulations fit into each class?
0: Sure, not a problem. The first class is the phenantherines, which includes codeine, hydromorphone, leverphenol, morphine, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and pentazocine. The second class is phenylpiperidine, which includes both meperidine and fentanyl. And lastly, the third class is phenylheptane, which includes methadone and propoxyphene.
1: So the reason that I wanted to bring this up and, and kind of delineate between these three chemical composition classes is that a patient who is allergic to an opioid from one class, so for an example, is morphine, which is a phenanthrene, may be traded with an agent from another class, something like a methadone and a phenylheptane without true cross-sensitivity. But even though the risk of cross-sensitivity is extremely low, patients who exhibit a true allergic reaction to one of the opioid analgesics needs to be monitored very carefully if an agent from another class is substituted. So, uh, Mike, um, what does a drug's PKA tell us?
0: So, by definition, uh, the PKA is the pH at which the ionized and unionized forms Uh, exist in equal concentration. So the pKa is the pH at which 50% of the drug is ionized.
1: Yeah. So I know we're kind of going back to basic chemistry when we're dealing with this. When we're dealing with opioids in particular, how uh, does the pKa become involved? Are they more basic? Are they more on the acidic side? How Where does the PKA typically lie and what should we be thinking about when we're dealing with opiates?
0: Yeah, thanks for asking that. So opioids are weak bases. Their PKA generally ranges from anywhere from six and a half to nine or so. Uh, and in solution, they dissociate into ionized and unionized fractions. And the relative proportions depend upon the pH of the solvents and their PKA, And when we think of uh, the human body uh, and we ingest a medication, it goes through our GI system. And so when it hits the stomach, that's a very acidic environment and opioids are highly ionized. And so they're therefore poorly absorbed. Conversely, when it gets into the small intestine, that's more of an alkaline environment and the, the drug is predominantly in an unionized form and therefore it's readily absorbed. However, opioids ultimately undergo extensive first-pass metabolism in the intestinal wall and in the liver, and so the overall uh, bioavailability is relatively low. So while we're
1: staying on the topic of kind of the basic chemistry associated with opiates, what does a drug's octanol-to-water partition coefficient tell us about that, that medication or about that drug?
0: Again, this this is a great question, Uh, and it kind of coincides with the PKA. um, But the octanol water partition coefficient uh, specifically has to do with lipid solubility. It's an indication for lipid solubility. And it's those more lipid-soluble drugs that facilitate opioid transport, and they tend to exert most of their effects uh, in the area in which they're administered. So uh, they tend to have less spread. So the way I tend to think about it is, The higher the coefficient, the more lipophilic the drug, the less amount of spread, but the faster the onset. So uh,
1: that's a great point that you bring up in regards uh, to the spread and the onset. So when we're comparing a couple of opiate medications that we've already discussed, something like fentanyl and oxycodone uh, per se. So fentanyl has the highest octanol to water partition coefficient of all the opiate agonists. So we're what we're saying here is that fentanyl is going to demonstrate a faster onset of action but with a shorter duration of effect because it's more quickly removed from the CSF. In comparison, oxycodone is going to have the lowest coefficient followed by oxymorphone, hydromorphone, tramadol, and then morphine respectively. So these medications uh, will demonstrate a slower onset of action and longer duration of effect. So they consequently uh, also demonstrate a greater association with side effects due to the cephalad or supraspinal spread when lipophilic opiates have fewer associated side effects due to the more rapid removal from the CSF.
0: That's exactly correct.
1: So Mike, I know you're the one that that was leading us through this discussion. I thought you did a great job with it and I really appreciate it. Um, Would you mind kind of giving us some main takeaways of everything we discussed today?
0: Absolutely. So the first takeaway, going back to that first case, is OIH, or opioid-induced hyperalgesia. It's that paradoxical condition in which long-term use of opioids, often accompanied by dose escalations, causes hyperalgesia or allodynia. That's the first takeaway. The second, we hit on side effects, and you did a wonderful job. Uh, kind of taking us through those. But again, the, the most common side effects that we see in opioids are sedation, respiratory depression, constipation, nausea, vomiting, and then sexual dysfunction. And again, the one that you really have to keep an eye out on is respiratory depression. The one you're going to see most commonly is going to be constipation. Now, anytime a patient presents and there's concern for opioid overdose, we touched on naloxone. It's an opioid antagonist and it is the medication to use in the case of opioid overdose. We also want to know about mechanisms of action. You need to know that opioids bind to mu, kappa, and delta receptors in the CNS and PNS. Um, and then we also hit on withdrawal symptoms in that second case. Probably the ones that I would take away uh, and like you demonstrated, they're really kind of the opposite uh, that we see in uh, opioid uh, overdose. So these patients will have chills, agitation, insomnia. Uh, they can also still have those GI uh, upset um, symptoms like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and then they can also have muscle aches. And just know that those symptoms can last for days or even weeks. Um, and so this isn't, a, this isn't a quick process, and, and, and oftentimes patients need our help uh, getting them through the periods of time. Going back to mechanism of actions, another takeaway point would be the distinction between methadone and buprenorphine. Again, methadone is a full mu agonist, whereas buprenorphine is a partial mu agonist and a full kappa antagonist. And it's because of these receptor variations that uh, gives buprenorphine the upper hand when coupled with the fact that it demonstrates that sealing effect. And so uh, buprenorphine is our our safer drug out of the two. Um, It's less sedating, has less respiratory depression. There's less risk for overdose. Um, And so uh, from that standpoint, buprenorphine tends to be the go-to. Kind of going back to the basic chemistry, I guess we got to touch on the PKA uh, and the octanol water partition coefficient. So the PKA, again, it's the pH at which 50% of the drug is ionized. And remember that opioids are a weak base. And so in general, the higher the PKA, uh, the faster the onset of action. The octanol water partition coefficient It reflects lipid solubility. So the higher the coefficient, the more lipophilic the drug, the faster the onset. Um, And again, there's there's also uh, less spread. Well, we hope you enjoyed this board review episode on opioid pharmacology. A special thanks to the AAP for their support of the Board Review Series. If you thought this podcast was helpful, please share with others who may also value the content. And don't forget to follow the AAP on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date on the latest news and opportunities. Thanks again for listening.